0: bit of a shock to some, but everyone has a flaw or two, or maybe ten. Even the best and brightest have had their weak points. Achilles had his heel. Howard Hughes had an obsessive compulsive disorder. Donald Trump is said to be so afraid of germs that he doesn't want to shake hands with people. Michelangelo was so antisocial that he avoided people at all costs and he was known to walk out of a room when someone's in mid-sentence with him. Einstein was dyslexic and by his own accounts had a terrible memory. Michael Jackson was. Where do we start with Michael Jackson? And then there's King David. It could be argued that David was among the greatest men who ever lived. He was a warrior's warrior, yet he was a gentle poet. He was a leader without peer, and the king against all kings in Israel were judged. Yet at the same time, he had a flaw that caused him trouble almost all of his adult life. His wisdom in the area of leadership, poetry, military endeavors... Unfortunately, did not extend to wisdom in the area of women. He was a righteous man in so many ways, but he failed miserably when it came to his relationship with the opposite sex. In the first seven verses of 2 Samuel chapter 2, we get a glimpse both of what made David great and a hint of what would eventually temper that greatness Read along with me, if you would, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1-7. through 7. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, anointed there David king over over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. And David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you have shown this kindness to Saul your lord, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you, And I also will show goodness to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your lord, is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. As chapter 2 opens, the key to David's greatness is there in the very first verse. It seems simple enough, but it shouldn't be overlooked. David inquired... Of the Lord. David was brilliant. David was courageous. David was creative. Yes, that's all true. But what made him really great was his relationship with the Almighty as it was reflected in his prayer life. If there ever was a man who could have tried to make it on his own, to advance based upon his own ingenuity, it would have been David. He had enough talent that if it was spread out to several different people, all those people would have been considered talented. They would have all been above average. But David had something that most talented people lack, and that was humility. He recognized that God was God and that he wasn't. And if he was to succeed in life, he would need God's help. And he would need to wait on God's timing and trust God to have his best interest in mind. And that humility, of which I just spoke, is reflected in David's prayer life. 300 years after David, the prophet Isaiah wrote these familiar words. They're from Isaiah chapter forty verses 28 through 31, if you'd like to turn there for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 38 through 21. Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. It's interesting to note that Isaiah, as he writes that, is writing to people who are facing an impending disaster. Their brothers up in the northern kingdom, by the time Isaiah writes this, had already fallen to the Assyrians. And they themselves in the southern kingdom are facing coming disaster, which will eventually be known as the Babylonian captivity. So this is not some theoretical exercise, either for Isaiah or the people that are reading this prophecy. This is a reality. Many of you have faced or are currently facing your own realities tonight. For some, it's the reality of failing health, either for yourself or for someone that you love. For others, it's an avalanche of interpersonal problems, family, friends, or maybe even marital problems. Others are sage enough to see an economic train wreck approaching and feel a certain anxiety over the prospect of seeing a way of life, vanish, gone with the wind, as they say. Isaiah's words and David's story should comfort us. I love the way that Isaiah puts it. He references, when he's telling us to be confident, he references the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the earth. I hope you didn't miss that. God is timeless, Isaiah stresses. He's sovereign, and He's omnipotent. That's a pretty serious trifecta. Timelessness, sovereignty, and omnipotence. God is timeless. When carefully considered, that should be a tremendous source of comfort and encouragement. He knows the extent of our problems and has always known them. His knowledge is timeless, just like He's timeless. His omniscience is timeless. He has always known what you're going through tonight. Always known it. He knows the extent of our problems. So nothing that comes up in our lives comes up as any surprise to him at all. It surprises us, and I'm glad that it does, because I couldn't handle it. I don't think you could either. If we knew what was coming tomorrow and the next day and the next day, we probably couldn't handle it. But he knows What's coming each day. And he can handle it. He is timeless. He's also the Lord. He's sovereign. Among other things, that means that there is no circumstance that's beyond his control. I want to say that again because it's so important. There is no circumstance that's beyond his control. You may be thinking tonight as you hear those words, well, wait a minute, I think I'm the exception to that. You just don't know what a mess I'm in. You don't know what the doctor has told me. You don't know what my wife told me yesterday when she said, listen, I think we need to talk. You know, the words that no husband or wife ever wants to hear. I think we need to talk. You don't know anything about that, Bruce. How can you say that God is perfectly capable of handling the situation? There's no circumstance that's beyond his control, that's beyond his sovereignty. But I'm going to tell you something. That includes everything from tumors to marriages to the Federal Reserve. None of that is beyond his sovereignty and his control. And he's the creator, Isaiah tells us. That means, by definition, he's omnipotent. If he created everything by the word of his mouth, he has to be omnipotent. Omnipotence means that God can do anything that's intrinsically possible to do. One of the things he did was to create this human body that we occupy right now, that's the partner of the soul the Greeks had this idea that the body is the enemy of the soul and that we need to get out of it as quickly as we possibly can. That was their idea. That's not a biblical idea. I know some Christians have adopted that, but that's not a biblical idea. We shouldn't be hoping that we die tomorrow. Now, some, most of us don't do that. But some Christians misapply the whole idea. The body is not the enemy of the soul. that should be discarded as quickly as we can discard it. It's a partner of the soul in doing the work of God while we're still here on this earth. And He created it. And He's going to leave you in that body for the precise amount of time that He has sovereignly decided. And it doesn't matter what kind of tumor you have or what kind of cardiovascular episode that you've had. God is the Creator. It is legitimate to pray for healing. It has happened in the past. Thankfully, it hasn't happened any time recently. That people have approached me and said it's not legitimate to pray for all this healing. That's bogus. It's all get out. God is the great physician. Jesus Christ made this body. Now we should always, as with any of our prayers, pray, if it be your will, Lord. You know, that's all we're wanting in our prayers. If it be your will, would you please heal my mother? Would you please heal my daughter? If it be your will. Sometimes it's not his will to heal. It doesn't mean that the person that's being prayed for or the person that's doing the praying has a lack of faith. Sometimes God, just in His sovereignty, says, no, I want that person with me. Or, no, I want that person for whatever reason that may be way beyond our understanding. They need to have that physical affliction for a while. We'll study it probably months from now or maybe a year or two from now in 2 Corinthians, but there'll be a passage where Paul is called up into the third heaven, he sees things that are so wonderful that when he gets back, he's not allowed to write them down. And as he comes back, the things are so incredible that Paul is in danger of becoming arrogant. So the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't become arrogant, specifically in that context, about the things that he saw in heaven. The thorn in the flesh was probably something physical. There are a lot of theories about that, but it was probably, by the wording there, probably something physical. That was for Paul's benefit. It's hard to imagine. I know it is. It's hard to imagine how any physical affliction could ultimately be for our benefit. But sometimes it is. But my point here is not really that. My point is God can heal this human body. I don't know. In some sense, I'm talking to the choir tonight, as they say in church circles. But am I really talking to the choir? Do you really believe that? Or is the only time that you pray for the physical healing of your family and your friends on Wednesday night when you gather here? How often do you do it in your own prayers? And not just yourself and not just your immediate family. I'm talking about your church family and your church friends as well. How often is that a reality? I think the intensity of our prayer lives is a barometer for the intensity of our spiritual life we need to be acting a lot more in this area not a lot less so God can heal this human body and there are no degrees of difficulty with him a sprained ankle is no more difficult for him to heal than a clogged artery in the heart or cancer there are no degrees of difficulty for omnipotence And the Olympics that are going to come up in London fairly soon. When I was over there, there were signs all over for it. They are doing a lot of building. People are already, there's already a buzz about the 2012 Olympics. One of the things they'll have in the 2012 Olympics is diving. I always like the diving because not only do they have to do the dive well, but there's a degree of difficulty factor in the dive. And if they do a particular dive well and it's a more difficult dive than other dives, then they get a bigger score. There's no degree of difficulty for anything that God does because he's omnipotent. God can heal this body. And he would also have no problem turning around the current economic situation if he desired to do so. It must at least be a consideration, speaking of our economic situation, that this situation is a result of our own spiritual failure as a nation. And if that's the case, then this passage from Isaiah, and we'll be back in 2 Samuel in a moment, but this passage from Isaiah is even more applicable than you might have originally thought. The Jews at the time that Isaiah writes this are facing military and economic disaster. It's right around the corner, and Isaiah is telling them about that. The reason they were doing it is because they had turned away from the Lord. They had turned away from Yahweh. The promise for renewed strength is right there in the middle of a passage that has been warning about coming economic and military disaster. This idea that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, that comes in the context of military and economic disaster. I hope we're ready economically, but I pray that we're ready spiritually. This passage tells us that we can be taken care of Through the disaster, just like the Jews could have their strength renewed through the disaster. Listen again to the words of Isaiah. This time, think of this coming disaster that we may or may not be facing, but it sure looks like it. Something's going to happen on the horizon. Now think of your current situation or the current national situation as you listen to these words. It's not just theory. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. That's who we're praying to. That's who we're counting on. This God doesn't become weary or tired. There's no degree of difficulty with him. His understanding is inscrutable. It's so far beyond our understanding. We can't even come close to to calculating God's omniscience. He gives strength to the weary. Is that you? Are you weary? All of us get weary from time to time. And in the coming, if there is a coming crisis, and it certainly seems like there is. Something's going to have to happen. There's going to be some correction at some point. Will you need strength? The answer is more than likely yes. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired. See, youths aren't supposed to grow weary and tired. You ever watch the little youngster running around the house, around the playground? They go and they never quit. Never quit. I don't know what the energy source is that they have, but we need to tap that. <laughs> you see, that's his point. Even though a youth may grow tired, sooner or later they wear out. Vigorous young men stumble badly, but not the Lord. And not those who wait upon the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall man up with wings like eagles, some of the most beautiful imagery in all the scriptures. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The Hebrew kavah means to wait, to hope in or to expect. Our confidence should not be in our own ability. No matter what the degree of that ability, it should be in the eternal God who is our refuge and whose everlasting arms stand ready to catch us when we fall. That's where our ultimate confidence needs to be. The eternal God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. That's not the easiest thing for talented people to swallow. Most gifted people, frankly see no need to wait upon the Lord, at least not until the last minute. Most talented people, it's a curse of the talented, the gifted, that they're going to do everything else that there is in their power, and then if all that doesn't work, then they'll trust in the Lord. Then they'll hope in the Lord or expect the Lord to handle it. But David understood from the time that he was a young man what the source of his success would be. And interestingly, he avoided allowing the standards of success established by the world to be his standards for success. What I mean by that is the standard of success of the world at the time that David was running from Saul, the standard of success for the world would have said, seize the throne as soon as you have an opportunity. It's yours. You've been anointed. Why are you waiting? What are you waiting for? Why don't you kill him? We've already seen that David had more than one opportunity to kill Saul. But he didn't. If he was operating on the world's standards, then he would have done that. But David was mature enough to say, No, that's the world's standards. That's not God's standards. And people that operate on God's standards are often misunderstood. We saw that last week. They are often misunderstood. And tragically, they're misunderstood far too often by other believers. Because so many of us, have bought into the world's standards. In business, in churches, we've bought into the world's standards far too often. The standard of success, according to the world, in David's time was seize the throne. But David resisted the temptation to succumb to the world's standards. And he had a confident expectation in Isaiah's terms, he waited upon the Lord. But he had a confident expectation that God's timing was infinitely better than anything that the world could offer. I don't know where we went wrong with this and where we got so tied up with trying to satisfy the standards of the world that we forgot that God's standards are infinitely better than the world's standards. Even though it looked very much for sure, like the time was right now that Saul's dead for David to become king, He still resisted the temptation to do things his own way and deeply desires God's perfect timing with respect to the issue. I mean, most of us would have thought Saul's dead, David's been anointed, he knows he's going to be the next king. Slap that crown on right now. That's not what David does. And that's why I said this very first verse gives us a hint, a clue as to the source of David's greatness it's his humility. It came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord. He prayed. Even though all logic would have said, now's the time. But he didn't go by logic. He prayed about it. He wanted God's perfect timing with regard to this issue. How the answer came, we're not told. But we are told that his priority was an inquiry of the Lord. He prayed. Most of you know, I just was recently in Bristol, England, where I had the honor of visiting the Mueller Museum. And after I visited the Mueller Museum, I was driven to the location of the physical plant where Mueller had built all the buildings for the orphanages. It's actually about three or four miles away. The museum is not where the orphanages were. I have to tell you, I was blown away by that. The buildings that Mueller built or that the Lord built through Mueller are still there. They're no longer used as orphanages. That's not a big problem in Bristol anymore. It was back then because of all the sickness and disease and that had killed so many children's parents when Mueller was alive. So the need for the orphanages has passed. But those buildings are still nice-looking brick buildings. And they're used as government offices and also university classrooms. It's massive. These are not small buildings. These are extremely large buildings, over, I think, about seven to nine acres. Maybe it's more than that. These buildings still stand as a testament to the grace of God, even though they're not being used for ministry purposes, just to drive by them and see what God did as a result of the faithful prayers of George Mueller. And, I might add, not just George Mueller, but his prayer partners. We shouldn't get the idea that Mueller's the only one that sat down in his office and prayed for these orphans. He led the prayer, but others joined with him. And one of the things that you learn, if you haven't already, if you don't know the story of George Mueller, you certainly learn it when you visit the museum. He never asked anyone for a dime. In fact, he was very reluctant even to let a need be known. He didn't believe in that. He said, God knows the need. Now, I'm not saying this should be normative for everybody, but this was Mueller. He said, God knows the need. And he went to the person that has the capital to build those buildings. He didn't start smooching up to someone that had the most money. So he figured, well, if I just talk to them, we can go around, God. I'll go right to the source of where that money's coming from. You know how evil that is? I'm serious. I am dead serious about that. That is as evil as it can be. You can't get more secular than that. A lot of Christians do it. But... Buddying up to people just because they have money is an evil. James talked about it. They shouldn't shun people just because they have money either. It's irrelevant. The person you should be going to is the person with a capital P, and that's God. And then God can go to those people. And if they're sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, then they'll give what God motivates them to give. If they're not, you're twisting their arm is not going to do any good. Oh, you may get the money. Sometimes ministries do. But they're still not glorifying God in the process. I would rather, I would much rather go to my Heavenly Father and tell Him of our requests. Tell Him of our needs. Let Him decide what funds are going to come in and then we can know for sure that we're on the right track in ministry. Otherwise, we'll never know. If it's all just gimmicks, we'll never know for sure is God in this or is God not in this? And George Mueller knew that God was in it. And I'm going to tell you, I wish I could have taken pictures, but it wasn't it wasn't a place to stop and do it. I was blown away. In fact, I, I told you when we did the missionary report on that a couple of weeks ago, when I was at the Mueller Museum, they have his desks there. And I, I was talking to the curator of the museum about it. I got a private tour, not because I was anything special, but because the guy that was with me, knew the curator very well, and we got this tour. And he said, why don't you sit down at the desk? Let's take a picture of you. I said, no, I'm not sitting down at that desk. He said, no, no, please sit down at the desk. I end up doing it, but if you ever see the picture, I'm not smiling very big. Because I'll tell you what, that was a spiritual man. I don't know how well-versed he was in theology. He was a pastor as well. But I'll tell you something that he did that we can all learn from. And that's that he prayed intensely and trusted the God that he was praying to to be able to answer that prayer in accordance with his own will. God answered him for George Mueller, and he did in a big way. And God can answer your prayers in a big way, too. You just have to wait on him. You just have to have the confidence in him that he has your best interest in mind and that he can do it. So David prays, and he was told, we don't know how text doesn't tell us. But he was told that now was the time. At least it's time for him to assume the kingship over Judah. The way this is going to work out is he becomes king over Judah first. He'll be king over Judah for about seven years. And then he'll become king over all of Israel. Then in verse 2, after this triumph of faith expressed in prayer. Then we get a hint of what is going to end up being a big problem for David. I appreciate so much that the Lord gave us the positive first. And then there's just this little subtle hint of what's coming up for the negative. Because the way that we are, if we'd have got the negative first, we'd have never even been paying attention by the time the positive came. The hint of the big problem Goes like this. It seems rather innocuous in the beginning. So David went up there, this is to Hebron, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. It doesn't seem like any real big deal, but that's where the problems are going to be. As mature as he was in his faith, he had a blind spot. In his spiritual life, and that was the blind spot of dealing with women. The multiple wives were the biggest source of misery in David's life. The biblical standard is one man, one woman, period. Comes right straight from the first three chapters of Genesis. One man, one woman. I know, yes, I know, for example, that Jacob had two wives and two concubines. How'd that work out for him? Think about it for a minute. He was miserable. From the day all that happened, and yes, he was fooled. True, he should have gotten Rachel in the first place. The rotten father-in-law gave him Leah. But the point was, the two wives and the two concubines caused nothing but problems for him. God used it. He turned it around and used it for his own glory by giving us the 12 tribes of Israel. But don't we have enough confidence to think that God could have done that also? Had Jacob just had the one wife? I have enough confidence that he could have. So just because God overrode that bad decision doesn't mean that either Jacob or David was right with having all these multiple wives and also all the multiple children by all the multiple wives. Jacob's problems came from his errors with women. David's problems Came from the same place. As great as he was, and I hope you've listened to me, I built him up, rightly so. He's a genius in so many areas. His spiritual life, let's just face it, if any of us could achieve half the spiritual life David had, I think we all should be happy. I'm serious about that. Even though he had this fatal flaw, or this near fatal flaw, he still was an incredible servant of the Lord. This is the same guy that years earlier had said the battle is the Lord's as he fought Goliath. And that's not the last act of courage that he had. This is the same guy that wrote some of the Psalms as he's running from his son Absalom over the down through the book of Kidron and over the Mount of Olives. We don't know a whole lot about this first woman, Ahinoam, but later we're going to find out that this woman is the mother of David's firstborn, a man named Amnon who will later rape one of David's daughters by another wife and start one of the darkest periods in David's life in terms of discipline. We do know how David came to be with Abigail, the former wife of the deceased Nabal. You remember that story from 1 Samuel. We find out that David is not just a bad husband. He's a bad father. That's a big deal. So many of our problems socially in our country come from kids not having fathers at all around. And too many of the fathers that are around are so busy doing other things, they're not paying much attention to the kids. David's failed in this area. And if we're going to praise him for the things that he did well, we need to be honest enough and transparent enough to express the things he did poorly. This is one of the things that he did poorly. That's David's flaw. So you see the greatness in verse 1. We see the flaw in verse 2. Now the remaining verses, briefly. After moving to Hebron, David is anointed king over Judah, the southern kingdom. And when he's anointed, he's told that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had buried Saul. You remember the Philistines just mutilated Saul's body, hung him up in Jonathan and the sons. The men of Jabesh-Gilead made a stealth attack took the bodies down, and gave them the proper disposal. The men of Jabesh Gilead are very loyal to Saul. Jabesh Gilead is not a city in Judah. That bit of information might help you to understand the significance of this. It's not a city in Judah. David takes special pains to express sorrow over Saul's death to those residents that were not yet in his kingdom And he wanted to show them this antagonism that Saul had with David was a one-sided antagonism. David had nothing against Saul. It was Saul that had something against David. This is an act of diplomacy on David's part. Now we're back to some wisdom. There was just a hint of the flaw, but now the text is letting us know his wisdom. If David could win their favor, he could eventually gain a foothold in northern Israel. He's offering to show them covenant faithfulness. Look at verse 6. And now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. In Hebrew, that's chesed ve'emet, chesed ve'emet. And I also will show this goodness to you. The term goodness there is tov. What what David's saying is essentially chesed ve'emet, loving kindness and truth, boils down to tov. Tov is synonymous or very close to synonymous with the New Testament word agathos, good of intrinsic value. This is something that's truly good. Hesed emet. It's interesting this terminology, Hesed emet. Hesed emet is the same terminology that is used of Jesus in John 1.14. Remember in John one one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Then in John fourteen, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That was written in Greek, but if it was in Hebrew, it would be chesed ve'emet. Same phrase. In John 1.14, it's a reference back to Exodus 34.6, where it is Yahweh who is full of chesed ve'emet. Same terminology. What that's doing in John chapter 1 is reinforcing the idea that Jesus is indeed God. He is Yahweh. So it's not just verse 1 that tells us that Jesus is God. Same terminology that's used of Yahweh is used of Jesus. God will show grace and truth to them, and as God's representative, so will David. The idea of ambassadorship is not fully developed until the New Testament, but David was an ambassador for Yahweh. What Yahweh would have done, David was going to do himself. And he summarizes the concepts of grace and truth, hesed ve'emet, in one word, the Hebrew word tov, which means goodness. I'm going to be good to you. I wonder sometimes if we really believe that God is going to be tov to us. Hesed, vehement, or tov. Is he really going to be good to us? He is. And then we need, in turn, to be tov to other people. If somebody ever calls you a do-gooder, don't be offended by that. There's nothing wrong with being a tov-doer. David was a tov-doer. It's what we ought to be. Nothing wrong with that. Now, if you're being a do-gooder in order to earn your way to heaven, that's a whole different thing. But as a Christian walking in fellowship with God, we ought to be do-getters. And then finally, verse 7, he lets them know that Judah has anointed him king. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your lord, is dead. Okay, gird up your loins, buckle it up, Saul's dead. Okay, we all recognize that. And then the last phrase, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So while he's been very complimentary to them, he's told them that God is going to treat you with hesed ve'em and I'm going to treat you tov, a summary of hesed ve'em, and I'm going to treat you good. But oh, by the way, I have now been anointed king. This is going to set us up for what we'll study next week because there's somebody else that's going to think that they're the king of the northern kingdom, one of Saul's sons. But David's telling them all, right, all this waiting's over. I've inquired of the Lord, and the men of Judah have anointed me king. The implication is, it's only a matter of time before the northern kingdom anoints me as king as well. You guys better get with the program. We all have flaws. The only exception to that statement, who has ever lived, is Jesus Christ himself. David is remembered for both his greatness and for his failures, and that is fair. It's fair. The only person that should be remembered for perfection is the one who is perfect, and that's Jesus. How are we to respond to this? We should be warned by his failures. while at the same time, inspired by his spiritual greatness.